If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Over the past several weeks, we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, one chapter at a time. And each week, the title of the sermon is a really a theological word or a concept that is not only important in the context of the whole Bible, but specific to that chapter. Uh, it's the theme that Paul is writing about in those verses, and so we want it to be the theme that we latch on to and understand. And we arrive at chapter 5 today, that word is imputation. And uh, I was talking earlier before the service started and um, said, uh, was talking about needing to print some sermon notes, and we joked about winging the sermon, and the, and the individual said, uh, with a title like imputation, it's going to be hard for you to wing, isn't it? And the reality is, yes, it is. Um, this chapter is not among the easiest in Paul's letters, uh, and imputation is not a word that commonly occurs on our lips on any given day. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't say Mary imputation or anything else. Uh, it's just not something that we talk about, but it is an amazingly helpful, encouraging, even glorious word used to summarize a biblical teaching. But it's a but like the word Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, is true because we see it taught all throughout the Bible, but the actual word Trinity doesn't show up anywhere in any of the 66 books. Just because that word isn't there doesn't mean the doctrine isn't true. The word is shorthand for that truth. Likewise, you'll not find the word imputation found anywhere in Romans or any other part of the Bible. Nevertheless, Paul teaches that very doctrine. So what is it? What is imputation? Well, we actually saw it most clearly, uh, at least in terms of the language of the Bible, in chapter 4 last week. Though we emphasized justification, being counted righteous in Christ, comes by faith and not by works. That was what we emphasized. The basis upon which we receive justification is imputation. Being counted righteous in Christ... That's imputation. And so while justification was a legal word, counted or imputed is a favorite word of the accountant. So at least three of you here are going to really like this word, that I know of at least. Not because counting involves math, but because it's the word for credited. It's an ancient word for banking and bookkeeping and accounting. That's the heart of the doctrine of imputation. It is not our righteousness that makes us right before God. It is the righteousness of Christ credited counted, imputed to us by which we can stand before him. So just like someone might deposit money into my account, their money is now counted as my money. So when we put our faith in Christ, his righteousness is credited to us. His righteousness with God is counted as our own. That's the doctrine of imputation, and that's what we want to see from Romans chapter 5 today. Not just to understand it, but to see its glorious implications for our life. I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. The second half of that chapter, verses 12 through 21, is an amazing sweep of all of human history. There's nothing quite like it in Paul, really in all the Bible. It's one of the most important and challenging passages that we find in Scripture. But for us this morning, as we think about unpacking it, it should not intimidate us because the bottom line of those verses is this. The doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness should be seen by us to be a beautiful doctrine because it if rightly understood, it leaves us breathless with total assurance of our salvation and lasting joy in God. But before we plunge headfirst into the waters of imputation, Paul closes the circle on his teaching about justification. And here he wants to emphasize our justified hope. Our justified hope. Up until now, in chapters 1, 2, three and four, he has been focused on the gospel in terms of the what and the how. What is the gospel and how has it taken place? But now he begins to, to, to roll out the implications of the gospel. In other words, what practical difference does us believing in Christ to be our Savior have in how we live our daily lives? And in verses 1 through 11, the dominant theme is one of hope. First, we see that we have hope in glory hope and glory. That's the thrust of verses 1 through 4. It's seen at the end of verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about this. What makes us happy? What brings us joy? What gets us excited as God's people is the fact that one day we will see God in all of his glory without any threat that we will be consumed because of our own sinfulness before him. We will see God as he is. How do we have that hope? We have that hope, Paul tells us, because we have been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our hope is no mere feeling. It's not just an idea. Since it is tied to God's justification, His declaration of our righteousness, it is a certain fact. It is God's declaration of our peace with Him. And Paul says that this kind of hope ought to have a certain effect in us. This hope and glory, says, should lead us to even rejoice in our sufferings. Now, hearing that, we need to first come to see and accept that even though we are God's people, God does not exempt us from suffering in this world. Someone says to you, become a Christian and you'll not have any more problems in your life. You won't suffer anymore. You won't get sick anymore. You won't be poor anymore. That person is a liar. Because Jesus himself was poor. Jesus himself, as a human being, was surely sick at some point. Jesus himself suffered under the wrath of God for us. And we look at all of his apostles and how they lived their life, and it was all the same. The carrying out of the gospel, even among those that were closest to God's own son, they were, they were lives filled with suffering. So we don't escape them. But at the same time, at the same time, that means we should not think that when we, in, when we go through suffering that God is somehow angry with us or that he doesn't care about us. That's not what it means. Paul has just said our hope isn't uncertain. It's not a hand-wringing, wishful thinking kind of hope. Oh, I hope it happens. I hope it happens. Maybe at Christmas time. I hope they buy me that gift I want. That's not, that's not the kind of hope that Paul is talking about here. The Christian hope is not one of uncertainty, but certainty. It is fact. And therefore, it gives us hope for the future. We have confidence to press forward even in suffering. And so secondly, we understand that means that we don't treat suffering lightly. Uh, you know, I, I read about a pastor who talked about being at a, a funeral one time and it was uh, a, a godly Christian man and his wife was grieving and this other dude came bounding in all happy and joyful and, and just like, you know, pie in the sky, everything's great. And he said, I wanted to just pop that guy in the nose. Let the woman grieve the loss of her husband. Suffering is painful. Suffering hurts. We, just to say we, have, we rejoice in suffering doesn't mean that, that we somehow just blow it off as if it's inconsequential. That's not the point. No, we can rejoice in suffering, Paul says in verse 4, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So think about it like this. After uh, our first mission trip to Africa... Um, in, uh, I think, August. Uh, in that October, we had our state convention's annual meeting, and one of the missionaries that we had worked with was going to be speaking at that annual meeting. And so uh, I arrived and uh, was um, looking for, I knew she was going to be there, was looking forward to seeing her again, uh, and uh, went into the exhibit hall, and I saw her in the back by the International Mission booth. And she caught my eye, and I caught her eye, I smiled, I was making my way, and then, bloop, someone walked in front of me. 
Hey, John, how you doing? What's going on? How was your drive? La, la, la. It's like, okay, it's good. It's good. It's good. And I'm all like kind of looking over, over his shoulder, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to be there. I want to say hi. You know, I want to see how you're doing. And then I got done talking with him and somebody else showed up. And it was like, okay, you know, I really want to go see that person. And it was like inching my way down the exhibit hall, talking from person to person to person until I got to see uh, Sharon at the back. And there's a real sense in which that is what suffering and difficulty is like for us in this world. We have our hope set in seeing the glory of God on the last day, of being in his presence as his people. But in the meantime, God has ordained that we encounter some other things first. It does not avert our gaze. It does not, at least it should not take our eye off the goal, but... It is nevertheless something that we go through in this life. And in fact, we can rejoice even in that waiting because we know that God is doing something through suffering. He is seeking to change our character through it, to purify it, to refine it, to cause us to trust Him and Him more, even to the point that we grow in our hope, we grow in our confidence and our desire to see God in all of His glory. On that last day then, when we stand before Him, we do not fear being put to shame because we understand that we have been justified because of God's love that He has shown to us. This is the second theme of hope that we see in these opening verses. We saw the hope and glory, and we also see a hope from love, a hope from love in verses 5 through 11. Sometimes the the idea of God-loving sinners is lost on us. Because we don't see, we don't see clearly the implications of, of what that means. Um, here recently, even going back through some old papers as or trying to organize and pack up some things, uh, I was thinking about um, the, the very last or one of the last semesters I was at seminary. I was nominated for the Clyde J. Francisco Preaching Award. And uh, that may not mean much to you, but as a student at Southern Seminary, it was a pretty big deal. In addition to the uh, $1,000 tuition scholarship, you got to preach in chapel. And this was not just like some small chapel. This was the uh, memorial chapel where renowned uh, theologians from all over the world, famous preachers, the, 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 the professors there, even people like Martin Luther King Jr. had stood behind that pulpit and preached in that chapel. And that was the potential for winning that award. I was excited. I was ecstatic. And I began reading the, what I needed to do. I had to submit It said a sermon tape and manuscript of a recent sermon for them to evaluate uh, and make a a determination. I just thought, a tape? This is 2002. We're in the new millennium here. I'm going to burn a CD. Come on, we can take it up a notch here. So I'm laboring word for word, listening to my sermon from a preaching class uh, that I got an A on. I thought, hey, A is great. Let's submit it. And uh, I just thought, man, I am going above and beyond what needs to be done for this entry submission. And so, you know, with, with uh, frankly, not a little bit of uh, puffed out chest, I took that packet and, and dropped it into the intercampus mail, uh, thinking uh, quite highly of myself. And it was uh, to my great shock that I did not win the award that year. Uh, and in largely looking back now in pride, I was uh, pretty down. I was pretty frustrated. And um, as I was thinking about that last preaching class, all the good things the professor had said about that sermon, I just thought, man, I don't understand. You know, I thought I was a shoe, and I thought he was the one who even nominated me. But I reread the submission process. 
And when I realized that I didn't actually ever stand a chance of winning that prize because I had disqualified myself. When the school was asking for a tape, what they wanted was not an audio tape, but a videotape. And so in my thinking that I'm going above and beyond all their expectations to submit this thing, I had not actually come close to meeting the expectations. It wasn't just audio. They wanted a full video presentation. I had read too quickly and failed to even meet the requirements. Now, I tell you that because, frankly, that is a remarkable picture of sin. Not just for the pride that was in my life at that moment, but because even when we think we are going above and beyond anything that would make God happy, we fail miserably. We miss the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. Even at our best, we do not even qualify for life with God. And with that in mind, we think of Paul's words here. So severe was our failing. So severe was our sin that we can only know God because Christ died for us. What, what, what does Paul say? Some of us think, I've never done anything that bad. But... Who are we before God? According to Paul here, we're not righteous people. We're not good people. We are ungodly people before God himself. And yet, this is how God shows his love towards us, the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the weight the magnitude of God's love for sinners. The only way that he could bring us to himself was to send Christ to die for us. And yet in love, he sent Christ to do that very thing. The result is not only a legal standing with God, but a relationship with him. We're not only justified, Paul says we have been reconciled to him in Christ. We are no longer his enemies, but his friends. He says, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I love how Charles Hodge summarizes the point. If Christ has died for his enemies... He will surely save his friends. That's what Paul is saying there. We have this hope of love through Christ. That brings us to the rest of the chapter now. We've seen this justified hope. And of course, that's meant to be a bit of a play on words there. It's not just the hope that comes from justification, but the fact that we are justified in having hope that we will one day see God. But now in verses 12 through 21, we also see that in Christ we have imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. And here, uh, just frankly, we kind of need to have our A game on because Paul is going to throw a lot at us here. One person, and to be honest, it was an older commentary and they typically don't make jokes in older commentaries. So I don't think he was joking. But do you remember in 1 Peter 3 at the end when Peter is writing to the Ephesian Christians and he says, uh, be sure to read Paul's letters... Uh, even though that they are some, there are things in there that are sometimes hard to understand. 
That's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it means that there's hope for all of us, right? If we're thinking, oh, that's like hard, Paul. Peter struggled too. That's all right. Uh, someone literally writes and says, I think that on this passage here, Peter probably had in mind when he wrote that. Well, I don't know about that, but um, that the problem is not so much, I think, actually understanding what Paul is saying, but coming to terms with it. It cuts against the grain of who we think we are and who we want to be and what we think is fair and right. But the reality is, if the kind of cutting part to our pride isn't true, then the salvation we have in Christ is not true either. Because who we are in Adam and who we are in Christ are parallel according to Paul in this passage. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The point here in verses 12 through 21 is this is a keystone text for the doctrine of imputation. You understand this, you get what imputation is about. But again, it begins in a surprising way. We think about the imputation of Adam's sin and therefore how we have come to have righteousness lost. Righteousness lost for all humanity. Paul says in verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man. This is something most Christians understand and believe with no problem. We read Genesis 1 through 3, we get it. But here is the problem. Uh, many, many years ago, um, we had an interesting debate in the youth class. And it was on this, uh, isn't Eve to blame for the fall? Girl said no, guy said yes. She ate first. She's to blame. Did she eat first? Yeah. Why is she not to blame? Because what we will see very quickly is that she was not ordained to be the representative of all humanity before God. She was not in that position of leadership. She was not the one responsible for all humanity. Adam was. She ate first. Adam failed to protect her and, 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 and allow that to happen. He then followed her in that sin. And as a result, sin came into the world through him, the one man. And just as God has promised, Paul says, death through sin. But then maybe more surprisingly, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now think of the implications of that. Contrary to, first of all, you know, going back to maybe what I said earlier about uh, the, the, the funeral, um, I think maybe one of the reasons why the guy was so happy-go-lucky was not only because he misunderstood re rejoicing and suffering, but like so many, we have swallowed the pill of popular culture that says death is just a normal part of life. You're born and you die and it's with trees, it's with plants, with the animals, it's with people. It's okay. This is how a secular world consoles themselves with death. That's not the biblical understanding. The Bible says the opposite. Death is not a natural part of life. It is a common part of life, but it is not natural. Paul is clear. Death came from sin. That means when we get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we understand death is our enemy, the enemy of all humanity. And it's only in Christ that we overcome it. So, so don't take the pill. Have a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding of where death is and what it is and why it's an unnatural part of life. It is a reminder, whether it is with the tragic death of an infant or even a toddler swept up in a tsunami, or whether it is the result of a man who dies from his own, the consequences of his own sins. Every time death happens, it is a reminder, sin is in this world. That's what we take away from that.
but more importantly for our purposes here in this passage, we need to think about Paul's use of the word sin. Because typically what we think of is sins with an S, sins that we as individuals commit, individual sins. I lied, it was a sin. I stole, it was a sin. I had impure thoughts, it was a sin. I got angry with that person when I should have, it was a sin. But here, when he talks about that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, he's not thinking about individual sins. He's thinking about sin as the beachhead, as the kind of first invasion that opens up the way for all other kinds of sinning. Because here, what Paul is doing is showing that Adam was the representative of all humanity and the sin that he committed and brought into this world became imputed to all men. To everyone who ever lived, we have the imputation now of Adam's sin before God. That's the connection that Paul wants to make clear. So we can say this, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In the Garden of Eden, He represented us before God. He was the Father of all humanity and He failed. He sinned, He died, and now all have died as a result because all have sinned in Him. And it's, that, it's right there where people cry foul. From Christians in the church to philosophers outside the church, they say, that is just not fair. Well, first of all, just from a modern context, we do this all the time. I mean, any of you, anybody watch sports in here? Now, come on, I know some of you really well. And there should have been some vigorous head nodding or even some amening, all right? Uh, I know half of you, your team didn't do so well, but the other half, the team did really well, so come on. You've watched sports. What happens when just one player commits a foul or does something he shouldn't do? Unnecessary roughness. The whole team is penalized. And that's in any sport, whether it's football, basketball, hockey. You might have one last player on the field. You might have yardage lost. You, you might have someone that gets to take some free throws. But the whole team is penalized because of the actions of one person. We understand representative punishment. No pun intended, but we see it in politics as well. Representative punishment, that was the, that was the pun. Uh, you know, all of us do not just show up and vote, right? That would be insanity. Although we might be able to run the country better if we voted on every bill. The point is, we elect people to go and represent us at a small body that represents millions and millions of people in this country, right? Maybe even a billion in this country, I don't know. The point is, we understand what this means because we live in it all the time. The Bible's also full of all kinds of examples. Do you remember how the argument that we saw in Hebrews a couple years ago in community groups, how... The priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Why? Because Abraham, the father of all Israel, paid tribute to Melchizedek, showing Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And Hebrew says, who, metaphorically speaking, was still in the loins of Abraham? Aaron the Levite. Therefore, all of the priests of his line were paying tribute, as it were, to Melchizedek. It's all over the place. But the reason why we don't like it is because it comes right to us on a personal level. We are considered sinners, not because we sinned, because Adam sinned in our place. And that is what strikes at the core of our irritation, the core of our sense of fairness. Nevertheless, this is what Paul affirms in Scripture. Now, what's interesting is that in verse 13, he actually interrupts his teaching a little bit here to explain how it can be true that people can be considered sinners when there's no law 
to be judged against. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 4? The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, he just said all of humanity is under Adam and Christ, and you know that his fellow Jews are saying, wait a minute, but what about the law? Because that was their life. They were the covenant people of God. And notice what he says here in verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Oh, well, how's that work? Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, listen, listen to the argument he's saying. He's saying before there was ever law, in other words, before there was ever a command that said, don't steal, and then I stole, and since I broke the command, I realized I'm a sinner, people still died. Where does death come from? He just said it's a consequence of sin. Therefore, Paul is trying to show that it's not the individual sinning that brings death. It is the imputation of Adam's sin to all of us by which we still die. People sinned, he says, but it was not like the sin, the transgression of Adam. Why? Because God gave Adam a command, right? Don't eat from the fruit. And what did he do? He ate of the fruit. He disobeyed the, the command. It was a transgression against God's command. But after that, people didn't have commands from God. They didn't have the law, right? Some people want to read back all of the law of Moses into everything that happened between Adam and Moses. That doesn't work. It doesn't happen that way. The Bible says it doesn't happen that way. So why are people dying if they're not breaking God's commands? Because, Paul says, their sin is still there. It's imputed in Adam's sin. And even their own individual sinning is still sinning, even if it's not like Adam's sin. Just because they didn't break an explicit command of God doesn't mean that they're not sinners. At this point, you say, man, this is just bad news. Well, that's the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin. It is bad news, but here's the good news, and here's why you will like it. Look at the end of verse 14. Adam, as our representative as the one in whom imputation rests, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Who was the one to come? It is Jesus Christ himself. And so when we trust him to be our savior, then we see here in verses 15 through 19 that we receive the imputation of righteousness from Christ. Righteousness from Christ. Adam foreshadowed Christ. He anticipated Christ but the similarities between them are really meant to highlight the differences. In other words, it's not like Adam was like this and he failed and, and Jesus is just like him and he just succeeds. No, Paul says, you understand. Yes, they are similar. They are two heads over all of humanity, Adam and Christ. Are you still an Adam or have you now put your faith and are under the representation of Christ before God? But here's the thing. There's no comparison. It's off the scale. Because if Adam took us to the negative, Jesus didn't just bring him back to zero. He took us all the way over to the positive. Paul will use this word, this phraseology over and over again. Much more, much more, much more. You saw it already when he talked about justification in verses 1 through 11. And he expands it here. So follow along, verse 15. Here's what we're going to see. The differences between Adam and Christ in terms of the quality of their work and the consequence of their work. In verse 15, we see that the free gift in Christ is not like the trespass in Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
Many died in Adam, but in Christ, the grace of God was lavished upon them. Furthermore, verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. How? The results are different. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, he says, we're condemned in Adam, but we're not just innocent in Christ, we are righteous in Christ. How much more the grace of God in Jesus. Adam's one sin brought condemnation, but Christ's gift covered over our sins and reveals God's righteousness. How do we know that Adam's sin brought condemnation? Verse 17, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Yet much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life to the one man, Jesus Christ. In Adam, all die and are condemned for their sins. But in Christ, all shall live because the grace of God overflows towards those who have previously been condemned. Paul sums the whole thing up in verses 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Just as the guilt of Adam's sin is credited to us because we are the offspring of Adam, it is imputed to us. So now when we believe God's promise of salvation in Christ, now he credits, he imputes the righteousness of his son to us. Jesus' perfection, his life of obedience that he lived before God is now considered ours with God. Think about it like this. Imagine that you are called, you're part of an ancient kingdom somewhere. And you are called to stand before this mighty king. You are to come into the royal court, stand before his presence, and either tell him about how you use his resources or, or he needs to, to say something to you. But, but it's not only an honor to be called, but the man wants to be prepared for it. And so you're, you're thinking, you're trying to remember, you're trying to remember, okay, now, now, now uh, when do I bow and, and what terminology do I use? You want to show honor and deference to this man. He is your king. But in the course of your travel, as you're walking down the road, there is a, a rider coming in a hurry. And as he gallops by, he rides his horse through the mud and it splatters up and covers you all on one side. And you're just thinking, oh, great. Here I am going to stand before the king and half of my garments are soaked in mud. It's in my hair. What, what am I going to do? And you think, well, I probably have just enough time if I quicken my pace to get cleaned up when I get to town before I go to the throne. So you quicken your pace. You begin to go quickly, trying to enter into town sooner than normal to get cleaned up, but then a robber stops you and demands your money. Well, part of the money that you have is not only to pay for your stay while you're there, but also to give tribute to the king. So you resist the robber. And in the scuffle, your, your cloak is ripped and you are forced back down into the street again, this time with not just mud, but horse muck now covering you. The robber runs away with your money and you are left with nothing. You come to your senses and you think about the situation in which you find yourself. You are delayed now with no time to be cleaned up, nor could you ever do anything with your appearance now. You cannot dare to refuse 
the summons of the king. And so dejected, you walk with your head hanging low to his palace. As you begin to approach, the guards tell you, what are you doing here? I'm here to see the king. Not like that, you're not. You will not dishonor our majesty by going in there looking like that, smelling like that. Who do you think you are? But about that time, as you're trying to plead your case, the king's son comes out, the prince, and he wants to know what is going on. And he looks at you and he explains what happens. And there is a look in his eyes that you cannot tell what it means. There is a kind of determination. There is a kind of steeliness. There is almost a sense of anger, but, there, but there's also maybe some compassion there. And he commands that your outer garments be stripped away. And you are afraid that you're going to be punished for trying to insult his father. But instead, with great grace, the king's son, the prince, takes off his royal robe and puts it around your shoulders. He takes his own bottle of water for his hunting trip and he pours it onto your head and scrubs off as best he can the mud and the grime. And he buttons you up, covering the rest of your filth of your clothes so that when you are presented before the king, you stand now not because of your own worth and your own cleanliness, but because of what has been provided to you in the gleaming robes of the royal sun. Friends and loved ones, that is what God has done for us in Christ. God sees the grime and the filth of our sin, not just the individual sins that we have committed, but the sins of our father, Adam. And he says, the only way that I can invite this person into my presence and not destroy them as an enemy of my holiness is to send my son who will shed his blood to cover over their sins to provide his own righteousness to be counted towards us. Paul says that all of human history comes down to two men, two representatives, Adam and Christ. In Adam, there is only condemnation for sin. But in Christ, there is righteousness freely given as a gift through faith. And what does that righteousness bring? Life. This is the last thing we see in verses 20 through 21. We see righteousness for life. The last two verses of the chapter once again answer an objection that Paul anticipates from his brothers according to the flesh. He's just summed up all of human history under Adam and Christ. And again, the question is, what about the law? Israel believed that the giving of the law restrained sin. It kept it back. It made his people more holy. But notice what Paul says. The law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to make sin worse. That's what Paul says. How does the law increase sin? Well, Ray Orland provides a great illustration from our own history. He says, the 18th Amendment became law in 1920 prohibiting alcoholic beverages. Did it work? Will Rogers said, the South is dry and will vote dry. That is, everybody sober enough to stagger to the polls. 1,520 federal agents were assigned to enforce prohibition. But this was the time in history when organized crime gained their power base. There were 10,000 speakeasies, illegal bars in Chicago alone, all of them run by Al Capone. Social problems caused by alcohol were real, but so were the problems caused by prohibition. Thinking about the day in which he lived and 
Whether or not prohibition should be repealed, John D. Rockefeller wrote this. When prohibition was introduced, I hoped it would be widely supported by public opinion and the day would soon come when the evil effects of alcohol would be recognized. I have slowly and reluctantly come to believe that this has not been the result. Instead, a vast army of lawbreakers has appeared. Many of our best citizens have openly ignored prohibition. Respect for the law has been greatly lessened and crime has increased to a level never seen before. Paul says God gave the law, but trespasses increased. Did not make the problem better. Essentially, the law made everyone to be their own little Adam. Remember he said that Adam received a command from God. He disobeyed that command. Everyone else up until Moses had never received a command from God. Therefore, their disobedience was not like Adam's disobedience. It was different. They still died. But it was different. But now when the law comes, all 613 of them, your trespass is just like Adam's. It's a direct violation of God's law. But notice, that's not God's final word about sin. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. No sin will ever trump God's grace. The more sin there is, the more grace comes from God. Not even to match it, but to overcome it, to overflow against it. Why? Verse 21, so that as, death, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that a glorious picture? The reign of grace, the ruling of grace through the imputed righteousness of Christ that brings us life with God. That is God's final word about sin. I give more grace. One of the most gripping scenes in any movie, I think, comes at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Some of you say, well, what about the beginning of the film where they showed 45 minutes of the D-Day battle reenactment? Well, certainly that was intense. But I will still stand by my statement that the most emotionally gripping scene comes at the end. As the hero of the film who is saved, Private Ryan is dying in the street and he looks up at this young man and he says, earn this. People have crossed Europe, they have died, they have bled to save this Private Ryan and he looks at him with his dying breath and says, earn this, earn this sacrifice. Those words have apparently haunted this man the rest of his life because even in old age, as he stands beside the grave of that man who gave his life for them, he begins to weep and he looks at his elderly wife and he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. In other words, tell me that I earned it. But no one can say that. No one can say that they've earned that kind of sacrifice because ultimately before God, no one is a good man or woman. Thankfully, by the grace of God, when we look into the eyes of Christ, He doesn't hang dying on a cross, gazing at us, saying, earn this. Earn this. Christ doesn't say that. Instead, He says, receive this. Receive this. Receive this gift of grace from my Father. Trust me, and you will be saved, not by your righteousness, but by my own. Father, what a wonderful gift that you have given to us, a gift that is so amazing it defies imagination. Father, it would be easy to, to write off a word like imputation as just some word of theology written in dusty books, but Father, the, 
the glorious truths that stand behind that word, precious truths. Even if we never use the word imputation again, may we love what that word stands for. Though we are condemned and dead in Adam, we are made alive, justified, reconciled through the righteousness of Christ that is considered our own. God, may we look to Him with love and faith because of the great sacrifice that He made on our behalf. May we stand back in awe at the love You showed for us in sending Christ to be our Savior, in offering Your own Son that we, the ungodly, might be brought to You.